All right, friends and family, why don't you go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. That's where we're at this morning, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Now, as you're on your way there, I want to remind you of the structure of Ephesians, right? So chapter 1 to chapter 3 is this big series of bold statements of truth, right? Who we are in Christ, our identity, our empowerment, our purpose, all of those things are wrapped up in chapters 1 through 3. So again, you could simply look at those first three chapters and remember the words new identity, right? That's it. It all wraps up those three chapters with that idea that you are now in Christ, your identity more than a construction worker, more than a stay-at-home mom, more than a high school student, more than a college student, more than an American, more than a whatever. Your identity is in Christ. That's Paul's big idea. Then he gets to chapter 4. And from chapter 4 to chapter 6, he starts to speak of the fact that because this is our, our identity now in Christ, we have a new community that we are a part of. Right? And just as we are in Christ, now we live and function and act and see the world through the lens of being the body of Christ. So, new identity leads to new community. We have been made different through the gospel, so we then live different as individuals and as the church. Now, this has always been the plan, right? You go back to chapter 2, verse 10. And Paul says, you know what, we were saved in this amazing thing called the gospel of grace to be coupled to good works that God had prepared beforehand that we would walk in those. So before you and I were ever born, before we ever gasped a breath and cried out into the world, God had already decided that you had the very special calling and purpose and function and responsibility. He had laid out a path for you to walk, and now you get to walk it. In fact, the good news of Jesus makes that walk possible. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, just as you were chosen to walk in a certain way, now start walking it out. So he says in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, right? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, what this tells us as Christians is that we weren't merely called to salvation. We weren't merely called to enjoy the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ as just for me to kind of keep internal to myself. No, it's this thing that's to be played out. We are saved for purpose. We were saved for this sense of calling and design. Literally, Paul calls it the walk, right? And he loves this phrase walk. And I want you, when you see the word walk throughout the New Testament, just translate that as life. To a life worthy. Right? To live in a certain way. And in Paul's mind, when he thinks about living in the gospel and living in Christ, he sees living as different things. Part of it is internal. Right? That we would live and, and act and walk internally with right types of attitudes. This then translates externally to right types of actions. But it's also communal, right? How it affects one another, how it affects God, all of that's important. That's why he says walk worthy. Worthy. That word worthy is where we get the word axiom of equal weight. 
right? So what he's saying is, with the same kind of magnitude that God has given you grace, with the same magnitude that God has given you blessing, with the same magnitude that God has given you power and strength and purpose, live your life in the context of those things, right? So you say, all right, God, to the degree that you have graced me, I want to live and walk in the scope of that grace and power. I want to be what you've made me to be. I want to live in those things. I want to live by those things. I want to live through those things. That's my calling. When people say, I don't know what my calling is in life, I say, man, read the first few chapters of Ephesians. You're going to get a sense of your calling. You may not get your particular calling. In other words, you may not know. Am I supposed to be an accountant? Am I supposed to be a missionary? Am I supposed to be a whatever? You may not fully know all of that, but you will walk in the context of life in the right way, with the right purpose, with an eternal mindset, and God is going to guide you. And so Paul says, man, walk worthy of that calling, because that is to what you were called. What we see, though, is that this isn't merely a task. It's also a temperament, right? And so Paul says, as much as you have the task of walking worthy, make sure you have the temperament. Verse 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, this is really important because there are some people in this room, and you know who you are, who are just type A personalities, right? Get her done, right? That's you. And so you're thinking, okay, i got a calling, I have a task, I have a purpose, so let's organize this thing and pound it out as fast as possible because I am on point, man. Well, that's great that you do that, and we love that you're that kind of personality, but notice that there are attitudes and temperaments. As we are the church, as we are Christ's people, as we function at his, as His body and live out our calling and purpose, we do so first with humility. I mean, that's, that's a tough gig. We're humble like Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As we're living out our worthy calling as Christians, one of the first things is we are to be that place that is safe where people say, I want to be near you because I find rest for my soul near you. You are just an encouragement. You bear burden in a unique way with me, and so that is a way that we live in humility. It also says in gentleness. Gentleness. That's another way we care for one another. Now, I think sometimes as a guy, I look at this and go, man, I don't want to be gentle. I want to be tough. Right? Guys want to be tough. But you know what? There is a place for men to be truly gentle, to be gentle with their wives and gentle with children and gentle with those that are hurting. Right? I mean, this is Jesus, right? Jesus was a dude that could flip tables and make whips and freak people out, but he was also incredibly gentle. Right? That fine touch work stuff. You know what I mean? Just the, the finishing touches of gentleness. That's the way we're to live. Also, it says patience. Patience is where we make allowance for each other's shortcomings. We, we're long fused. Right? That's to be our heart and walking worthy of the calling to which we were called. Also, we bear in love. Right? We realize that we are all sinners saved by grace. We realize that we are all imperfect, going in a direction. We realize we all have faults and weaknesses. We're all going to make mistakes. And we want to think the best toward one another, right? That is the heart of living the walk that is worthy of the calling to which we were called. He goes on to say, eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. And I love that eager, urgent. 
to love that. See, this is so good because, you know, sometimes in, in the church and among Christians, whether we want to admit it or not, we like conflict because conflict is drama and drama is fun, right? And so we stir the pot. Do you know what so-and-so said? Oh, do you know what the church leadership did? Oh, do you know what so-and-so was all about? I heard about their kids last weekend. Woohoo! Right? Like, whatever it is, right? Wanting to stir that pot. Paul says, no, man, you want to know the true Christian life right here? You want to fight for peace. You want to fight for unity. You want to have humility and love and bear with patience and gentleness. Oh, that is a worthy calling, he says. See, that's the purpose to which we are saved, and the disposition in which we do all of those things. And see, the absence of those things, it's pretty serious. Because the absence of peace is going to be the absence of Christ being felt. Because Christ is our peace. And the absence of unity is the absence of the Spirit being expressed because the Spirit, He brings the unity in the church and if you don't feel those things, then it's counter to the essence of God's program because God's program is bringing all of us together into one for purpose. That's why Paul says, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All. I love this because, again, Paul is letting us know really quick what this is all about, right? I was saved with a purpose. You were saved with a purpose. You have this disposition that you were called to in that purpose so that we can all be one as God is one, right? One church, one gospel, one destiny with one trinity, right? The oneness factor is huge for Paul. This is a part of our purpose and our calling. But oneness isn't sameness and so he says we are all these one things right under one banner under one god verse 7 he says but grace but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of christ's gift therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men then he gives this sort of commentary in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But when he also descended in the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now this is this weird little sidebar that Paul gets into and you're like, why did you even do that? I don't even fully get that. Well, here's what this means really quick. What he says is, you know what? We're all meant to be one. And that oneness comes from Christ who descended to the earth, who took on the form of human likeness, walked among us in our own weakness, yet he himself without sin, he descended into the lowly parts of our earth, but then died, rose, and ascended in victory. And when Christ died, rose, and ascended in victory, he led a host of people captive and he set them free. In other words, everybody in the Old Testament who had died and were basically kind of just waiting for the coming Messiah, when Christ rose, they went with him to heaven. Man, he took a host of captives into heaven with him. He says, all right, you're getting, you're going, we're gone, let's do this thing. But then for the rest of us who were left, the church at that time, he gave gifts. He gave these, these particular things to unite everybody in one body. And it's gifts that Paul wants to talk about. And the purpose and function and role of those gifts, which is really our topic this morning. And so Christ gave gifts in His grace. 
And those gifts, starting in verse 11, are things where he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, this is just part of a list of gifts. And as we get into this, what we see in this first list right here is this, this is the, the, the direction gifts, right? They're the things that, that take the church in a certain trajectory. They remind the church of certain responsibilities. They house the church in its particular calling. So they're constantly reminding these five gifts of spirit-empowered grace are constantly reminding of mission and purpose and calling, right? That's what they do. And then they help deploy the gifts of activity and the gifts of situation, which are lists that we will see in a minute. The important thing to note first off here is that he gave them. He gave them. Jesus, or the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, is the one who in his own prerogative says, you know what, here's how I'm giving the gifts, here's who I'm giving the gifts to, it's just the way I do things, I see fit to do that. That means that we don't earn our gifts, right? We can't manipulate getting those gifts, we can't work for our gifts, they're just given to us. They're a supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And he just says, man, I, I just, I want to give this one to this guy, and that one to that girl, and they're going to get three, and they're going to get five, and they're going to get one, and it's all my purpose and function, it's just the way he does it. Now we can pray that God would give us gifts, and we can learn to work more proficiently in the gifts that are given to us. We're called to that. But ultimately, he gives those gifts. And so you might look at your life and say, well, I've got these gifts, but I wish I had those gifts. And Jesus would say, oh, no, but the gifts I gave you are, are exactly what I want you to have. Because I give them for a great and glorious purpose. And so he gives the gifts. Now, if you look at these five gifts on your screen or on your page, you see the first two are foundational. They're foundational gifts. The apostles and the prophets, right? They help lay the foundation. Paul talks about that earlier in chapter 2, right? That's what they do. They communicate the word in very particular and unique ways. Then the third gift is a multiplying gift. Evangelism. How the churches spread. How new people come to Christ. That wonderful gift of evangelism. And then the fourth and fifth gifts are establishing gifts. Right? They root us deep and they deploy us in, in very special ways. So you have foundational, multiplying, and establishing. Here's the thing you have to understand about all of these gifts. These gifts are not, are not, so, so that those with those gifts can do all the work of the church. Those gifts are not so the people in those categories can juggle all of the hats and spin all of the plates in the church and do all the ministry. Because Paul says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to, verse 12, Equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip. In fact, those gifts in verse 11, you know what those really are? They're agitators. They're agitators. In fact, in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, it talks about don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as is the habit of some, right? Well, well in that text, literally, what he says is stir one another up. That, that Greek word there means to agitate. And the leadership of the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, right? Those gifted individuals are really designed to constantly agitate the environment of the church, to push the church forward, to remind the church of its responsibilities, to call the church out of complacency at times and into greatness as it was designed to be. That is really the function of those first gifts, to agitate. 
And the reason is because churches just inherently ebb to safety. Right? They ebb to a status quo. They want stability. And sometimes to get stability, what they do is they say, you know what, we stop reaching out, we stop trying to push the ball forward, we get real easy going, real comfortable in ourselves. It's us four, bar the door, call it done, we're a church. And we're good. So the agitator, like the evangelist, comes in and says, no, but we have to reach the lost, reach the lost, reach the lost, reach the lost. And everybody in there is going, I don't want to reach the lost. I want to stay comfortable. Right? And so that's what they do. Right? They keep pushing. Or sometimes Christians, whether we like it or not, we fall victim to compromise or culturalization or idolatry or just general, just like, eh, whatever. It's not that central to me. And the prophet steps in and agitates. You know, watch out. Don't get too lukewarm. Don't get too comfortable with your world that you become like your world. Agitate, 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 agitate. All of this is so that the whole church, everybody involved, does the work of ministry. All of us. That means that every single one of us in this room has responsibility to be a minister. And there are some that help equip us to that task. Now, I'll tell you another reason why I think this is important. Um, I, I was talking with my wife about this a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was saying, you know what, in, in all the areas of ministry that one can engage in, the most uncelebrated form of ministry is in the local church. I mean, if, if you go to a foreign country and help the needy, everybody celebrates that, even the world, right? Atheists will say, that's really noble, that's humanitarian, that's awesome. You'll get the pat on the back for that. You go to downtown Seattle and you serve in a soup kitchen or you help the homeless and everybody's going to say, you're a good person. Man, that's awesome. I, I couldn't do that. Man, kudos to you. And those are good things and valuable things. I'm not trying to take away from that. But when somebody says, I'm a Sunday school teacher, week in, week out, 52 weeks a year for years on end, rarely do people go, wow, that is amazing, so awesome, pat on the back. When somebody says, you know what, I, I run security at the children's ministry entrance to keep our kids from anybody that would come in and do something nefarious, rarely do those people get a consistent encouragement of way to go. The people that week in, week out clean the offices at the church rarely get praise from people, but they serve week in, week out in unsung ways. Right? It, it, it's church ministry that sometimes is the least celebrated. It's hard stuff, but we're all called in some way to minister. The leaders equip so that everybody can go and do, right? Now, in doing this, I want you to understand, I want to kind of look at a palette of things really quick. For all of us, there's different layers to this. One layer, ready, is that everybody in this room has a responsibility, just a responsibility in the context of the local church. Every one of us do. Right? So when you're reading through the New Testament, for example, and you come across a passage that says the one another's, or do this to one another, or that to one another, that's everybody's responsibility. That's not the pastor's responsibility or the elder's responsibility. That's everybody's. Right? Bear with one another love. It's all of our responsibility. We all have responsibilities. Giving is a responsibility. Right? Investing is a responsibility. Now, some of those responsibilities are given also as gifts. Some people have the gift of mercy, and then therefore the responsibility of mercy is very easy for them. The rest of us that don't have the gift of mercy, mercy's hard, right? But it's a responsibility. 
Some people in our church have the gift of evangelism. So, man, they, that's just like a fish and water going after other fish. Man, they get it. The rest of us have a responsibility to evangelism. may not be our gift, which means we have to work twice as hard as the guy with the gift. That's what it means. So we all have responsibilities that we are to exercise in the context of the local church. That's one way we do it. Another way that we can be a part of the local church is we invest our talents or abilities. These are things that we just learn over the course of life. It's not something the Spirit gives us. It's just things that we know. I think about like Sarah Gunderson in our church. She's a CPA. I don't think that's a Holy Spirit gift. Could be. Um, But it's a talent that she uses to help us as a church. So when we're trying to figure out some of the financial things of the church and how that plays with the IRS and everything else, we turn to Sarah and she gives us wisdom and gives us guidance. Right? She uses her talent. There's different people around here that have different abilities to build things and construct things. Not necessarily gifts, but talents learned. And so we all have things that we contribute by way of responsibility. We all have things that we can contribute by way of talents. But then there are gifts. Holy Spirit gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And in that context, Paul is talking about these charismatic gifts. Now, you hear charismatic, and you're instantly thinking he's going to speak in tongues any second if he's talking about charismatic. No, I'm not. Because that word charismatic, it just means gifts of grace. Right? Gifts of grace. So the Holy Spirit, in his grace, says, you know what, I'm going to take Matt Boswell, and I'm going to give him these three things that are given by me so he can go and build up my church. He can do the work of ministry. Some of Matt's gifts are help, designed to help others learn how to minister, and some of his are just purely for his own ministering purposes. But that's what I do. And every single one of us in this room, if you know Christ, has some gift of grace. Maybe more than one that you are called to use. In fact, in the scope of the New Testament, there are 20 gifts totally listed out. Now, I don't think that's an exhaustive list. It's just the list that we have. 20 gifts now, if we had the time to go through all of those, I would, but luckily we do. All right, so, it's a good thing it's not sunny out or anything. So, gifts, all right? In fact, we have a slide for that. Those are all the gifts in the New Testament. And you might be able to look at those and say, all right, well, uh, how, how do I see these 20 gifts in my life? Well, here's the thing. There are nuances to each one of these gifts. So, for example, take the gift of teaching, all right? Teaching is an excellent use of what I'm going to try to help you see. There's going to be some of you in this room, and you're a teacher, but the way God has called you to teach is one-on-one. There's going to be others in this room that are called to teach small groups. There's going to be others that are called to teach large venues. Some of you are going to be meant to teach children, and some of you are going to be meant to teach teens, and some of you are going to be meant to teach adults. So suddenly, that gift of teaching is sixfold. Now you have the singular gift of teaching that has 120 different variations of how it can play. Right? So gifts multiply. Then you might use that gift in the church. You might even use that gift in the world. Your gift can be used in the world for the purposes of Christ. So now we're up to 240 different ways that that single gift of teaching can play. And then I'm sure within that, there's all sorts of nuances. So every single gift has literally just hundreds thousands potentially of ways that you can live that out so don't limit yourself you go oh, i don't have the gift of teaching you might you just might not have the kind of gift that other people have in the realm of teaching but everybody has a gift right 
Now, I want you to notice in this list certain gifts that are missing. Pessimism, sarcasm, criticism, sourpuss, none of those are in there, right? I, I've, I've looked for charismata sarcastios everywhere. I can't find it. I really want the gift of sarcasm, but I cannot locate it, all right? It's just a learned skill in my world. Thank you. All right. Um, they're all building gifts, all of them, right? They're all designed to construct, establish, see things advanced. That's why they're given. So the first thing we see in the list is the apostle, right? And this could be a big A apostle, which is like the 12 and Paul, or a little A apostle, right? And that's probably a little bit what Paul has in mind here too. And the apostles are like church planters. They're visionaries. They're those people that really see movements get underway. If you think about like uh, Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel, that would be kind of the essence of an apostolic type of gift in the modern climate. Right, where everybody else was looking at the hippies saying, oh man, Jesus, please nuke the hippies, right? And Chuck Smith was the guy that said, or let's reach them for Christ. And he could just see that, man, if we really turn these people loose in their culture, in their context with the power of the gospel, this could create a powerful movement. That's exactly what it did. He could kind of see, and God used him in kind of that apostolic way, not as a big A apostle of the New Testament, but in the spirit of those who create movement. That's an apostle. Then you have the prophets. The prophets are those people that just learn and know and understand how to speak the truth in a cultural context. So they're able to see a cultural situation and they look at scripture and they see how scripture is relevant to that cultural situation. And they can just speak into it, right? They just know how to connect the dots because the Spirit shows them how to do that, right? It's just there. It just happens. It just pops, right? Uh, this is a little bit probably in some ways how I'm wired. And my daughter, Honor, is very much wired this way. And uh, typically it gets us in trouble because we're saying, well, it's just true. People are like, well, I don't like it's true. I'm like, you need to get over that, you know, because it's just true. But it's a good and solid, helpful gift to the church, you also have the evangelist. The evangelist is very simple. They love God and they love people. Right? They love God and they love people. And they want those two to be in relationship because though they know that those two are not in relationship outside of the gospel. And so when you start talking about the lost and you start talking about the gospel, it's the evangelist that begins to well up with tears. Or when you talk about how the world isn't getting reached, they instantly try to figure out how do we reach the world then? Right? When they see the world coming apart and people making bad decisions, they instantly think the gospel is the solution, not politics, not voting, not cultural change in lesser ways. They instantly go to this idea that the gospel changes lives and the world needs the gospel. And so they're like, they're like that. They're just after it. On our rank, Scott Thompson is very much the guy that has the gift of evangelism. And then he reminds me, by the way, it's still a responsibility. You go do it too. Right? Which is part of his job, too. The gift of evangelist is to equip the saints for what? Evangelism. The gift of the prophet is to equip the saints to do what? Prophesy. Right? I mean, it's all the same thing. We're, we're imparting to one another. Next, you have the shepherd. Some versions say pastors, but I think Paul, I don't, he might be dealing with offices, but I think he's also dealing with gifts and abilities and how it's exercised and played. And so the shepherd is really connecting the Word of God with, with souls in their circumstantial need. It's kind of like biblical counseling, right? Coming alongside and speaking into the soul and helping them navigate and just giving them guidance in life, right? 
In fact, in our ranks, if you know a man named Steve Bostrom, you've met the shepherd spirit. He just loves to make that investment and shepherd people in that way. The next thing in the list is teacher. And the teacher, oh man, they love cross-references and info and big theological words, right? You say hypostatic union and they break into a sweat. Like, oh, oh, give me another. Right, like that's the teacher. You say hermeneutics and like, oh, they have trading cards of Calvin and Luther and Bonhoeffer. And, you know, like they, they love all of that. And they're the teachers. They love to learn more information. They love to teach the rich truths of doctrine and theology and scripture. My friend Chris Conley is that guy that you, you say any new book and he's like, oh, yeah, that's in my Amazon want list. He's that guy. All right. And they're the teachers. Next, you have the gift of encouragement right these people are always smiling they always want to build up they always want to affirm other people they want to make sure that you're happy and doing well my son grayson very much has the gift of encouragement around our house he's like everybody be happy nobody be mad nobody be sad everybody you look beautiful you look awesome dad even though you're old you still look good i mean things like that it's really gracious on his part perry kirsten if you know perry has the gift of encouragement. I can roll in looking like a hobo and she will tell me I'm handsome somehow. Like, you know, like, you have the gift of encouragement. Love that. Maybe you find that in your life you have the gift of mercy. You see hurting people and you want to connect with them. You want to build them up. You go, man, I just feel for where you're at. I want to show you mercy because, again, I, am, I can appreciate what it must be like to be in your circumstance right now. My wife, Ellen, is very much that person. We always laugh. I'm like, honey, it's good that you have the gift of mercy. No, they don't. You know, and like, you balance me out. Because she really feels for people in real ways. Some of you might find that what you have is the gift of giving, right? You know you're a giver if you love campaigns and you love drives and you see that giant thermometer that we're filling up and you're like, I love the giant thermometer. I love giving. You hear some need in the church and you're instantly trying to figure out, uh, they need a washing machine. Do I have a washing machine? I'll just give them my washing machine. I might need one, but I, somebody will give one to me eventually. Maybe. Who cares? I don't need it. I can wash my hand. You want to give it, right? That's you. Whatever the need is. My daughter, Emma, has the gift of giving. I have the gift of receiving. So it's a perfect union. You know, Emma, you need to give me a back rub because that's what daddy wants. Um, And she gives me a back rub, right? But she loves to give her money. She loves to give all kinds of things in her life. My friend Sherry Cease is another one, has the gift of giving. And again, I have the gift of receiving, so it works out awesome. So they give because that is their gift. Some of you might find that you have the gift of leadership, right? You see the big idea, and you know how to get people going toward the big idea, right? You lead them in that direction. My mentor, Jim Harper, huge gift of leadership some of you have the gift of hospitality right you want people over a lot right you want them to feel at home while they're there when you say make yourself at home you actually mean it right like a lot of people say they're like make yourself at home just don't go crazy you mean it though you're like make yourself at home you, you want to wear my slippers wear my slippers that's great right because you have the gift of hospitality steve and kimberly smith And our church have the gift of hospitality, love people to be in their house as much as possible. Some of you might have the helps and service gift, right? You're the person that jumps in whenever there's some need that oftentimes many people won't jump on board to, right? 
You're the person that's like, hey man, anything, anytime, just let me know. I'll go there. I'll make it happen. If nobody else is interested, I'm interested. You just want to jump in and do it. Bob Boyd is that man in our church that's just there. He wants to jump in and do it whenever there's a need, right? That's helps and service. Maybe some of you have the gift of administration. How do you know you have the gift of administration? You like Excel. That's how you know. You like cells and boxes and pie charts and flow charts. You fold your underwear. That's how you know um, you have the gift of administration. You like details, right? And you try to make sure those details all come together. Reese Vinterton in our church is definitely that individual that has the gift of administration. Maybe some of you have the gift of discernment. You have that weird spidey sense that makes the rest of us feel weird, like you know something about us, um, right? Ah, discernment, spooky stuff. No, but that gift of discernment just can see through all the debris and the decision and go, no, this is the best route. And man, there's something in my spirit that just doesn't feel right about that. I can't peg it. So let's keep praying about it, investigate it, see more where it's going. That's the gift of discernment. And maybe some of you have that gift. A good old friend of mine, Hal Green, definitely had the gift of discernment in so many contexts. So helpful. Maybe some have kinds of healings. Now under this, it can be physical, it can be emotional, be spiritual. I had a friend back in Spokane, Lynn Coons. She just prayed for sick people and things happened. Right? That's the best way I can put it. It's a nice little old lady, prayer warrior for Jesus. I'd say, Lynn, uh, here's the situation. She's like, I'll be on that. I'm like, yes, you will. Right? And God would just use her in incredible ways. Maybe some of you have the gift of wisdom. You bring the word of God to a situation in a way that is truly consistent and insightful. Just wisdom. Keith McKinney, one of our elders, is this guy that every time I see him in a meeting and anytime he has to go into something that's a little bit sensitive, there's just this immense wisdom that comes out of the man. And I believe that is the gift of wisdom in him. Maybe some have the gift of knowledge. You have this ability to retain and express the word in, in a real powerful way that's sometimes not even like, I can't always connect the dots and then you connect it in such a way where we go, wow, I, that makes, it's brilliant. My friend Charlie Champ is that guy that, man, he'll come into my office and we'll start talking about something and that guy can take any Old Testament passage and lace it to Jesus, right? This just incredible knowledge and retention that pulls out of nowhere. Maybe that's your gift. Maybe your gift is the gift of faith. The person that has the gift of faith irritates the rationalist to no end, right? They're the one that says, oh, God can, oh, God will, oh, we just need to pray, Right? The, the pessimist is dumbfounded by that person. I don't even know how you think. You know? Like, how do you do that? But some of you have the gift of faith. Ryan Habig in our church, man, that guy's got the gift of faith. Right? Through all things, thick and thin, he just trusts God. There's also the gift of miracles. Now, there can be overt miracles and there can be covert miracles. There can be miracles where everybody's scratching their head like, wow, that just happened miraculously. But there's other miracles that happen even in the church where, you know what, sometimes you're like, man, I don't even know how that happened. I don't know how we pulled that off. I don't know how that came together. And then there are consistent people usually attached to those things. I look at the Rutherfords in children's ministry and I go, miracles happen there every week, right? How did you pull that together? How did it happen? You didn't have all of your teachers. How did you still teach the classes? I don't know. Jesus showed up, taught the second graders, you know, like, just like that. Shane Bailey, in here, miracles happen every Sunday in this room, getting this place together in time for an 850 service. Miracles. We also see in the list that there are tongues, right? And in our church, there are some tongue speakers and there's non-tongue speakers. We all get along fine, right? Nobody freaks out at anybody, right? 
We realize that there is a time and a place. We're not a church that would say that's not for today. We realize there's a time and a place for the tongue speakers. And if there's somebody that speaks in tongues in a corporate setting, which we've never had, but if we ever did, then what it would have to be accompanied by is the interpretation of tongues. So somebody would stand up, say, bought a Honda, should have bought a Yamaha. And the interpreter would stand up and say, he wishes he bought a Yamaha. Um, So, (laughs) works awesome, right? So, and with those last gifts in particular, where you find them in Scripture, a lot of it is related to like the Holy Spirit and supernatural things and everything else. And we're not close to that as a church. We're not what they call a cessationist church. Um, but we're also not like, uh, like a super charismatic church. We're, like, we're kind of like charismatics with a five-point harness on, right? So as soon as somebody starts swinging from a chandelier, you're a pinata. We're going to hit you down and, and then say, all right, let's get that under control. Right? So we're kind of like that kind of church. But we celebrate all of God's gifts being used, right, in their context with their purpose for God's glory. Now, the question is, how do you know your gift, right? Some people even say, do you need to know your gift? And I'd say, I don't think you need to know your gift. If you want to know your gift, you can find out. How do you find out what your gift is? Here's a couple of pieces of advice. The first thing is, you know, just start trying things. See what works. Right? I mean, as far as just like, you know, maybe it's administration, maybe it's helps, maybe it's teaching, then start finding outlets and seeing what God does, because I find that when you try to just see things, you know, what works, at times it, you, you start to really discern quickly, oh, that's my gift. The other thing is, what are your passions in your heart, right? What is that thing that God has just really just wrapped your soul up in? That might be your gift, right? So you just start trying things, weigh your passions, see where God takes it. The second thing about this that I think is important is why your gifts. Why your gifts. Back to verse 12. The building up of the body of Christ. Your gifts are not for you. I have the gift of teaching, for example. Uh, And if I just said, I'm going to gather all my books and I'm going to study all day long and I'm never going to share that with anybody, I'm misusing my, my gift. Right? If it just becomes a cul-de-sac of my own interest, I'm misusing my gift. It's for the building up of the body. So I need to give my gift to all, right? To all. And in that sense, this is where our props come into play. This is, this is what we are right here. All right? Every one of us is like a puzzle piece in that sense in the church. And so you, I, whatever, um, my gift would be like my protrusion right here, right? My, my lack of something is the indentation. It's like a puzzle piece. So, so me as an individual then, I go, you know what, there's some things I can contribute. I have the gift of teaching, so I can do that. I have kind of a prophetic type gift, I can give that. I don't have the gift of mercy, though. That's pretty empty in me. And I could really use that. I don't always have the gift of encouragement. In fact, I get discouraged a lot of time. I need an encourager in my life. I need the gift of mercy. So somebody with the gift of mercy can slide into my life and say, well, let me impart some mercy to you, Matt. Let me give you some balance and boundary and a little bit more sensitivity to things like that. And I go, great, well, that person's filling me in here. right? But then there's going to be somebody else that can fill them in right there right? with what their gifts are because they're lacking something that they need. See, that's the way the body's supposed to work together. And we make this picture in the midst of it. Now, here's the problem in the context of the church uh, so much nowadays, especially as we isolate more. Everybody, not everybody, a lot of people want to be more like this. Right? I don't want to have to fit together. I want to just come to church and sit. Ideally, there'll be a chair between us. All right? 
So I just want to sit kind of independent. They can sit independent, and we don't want to necessarily lock together. Or if I'm lucky, I'll find an edge piece that doesn't really need me anyway. All right? Do it that way. But see, then we start to rob one another because then I got this down here, like in my life, I've got this lack of encouragement. And perhaps you have the gift of encouragement, but you're not wiring your life in such a way that you actually want to walk together with me. You're like, no, I just, I just want to stay in my chair. I just want to come. I want to stand. I want to take communion. I want to sit. I want to listen. I want to stand. I want to sing. I want to leave fast. All right? So I just want, I just want this. I just, I'm good with this. Right? And, and, and it robs me, and it actually robs you, and then chiefly it robs Jesus. Or imagine, maybe this is the scenario. Maybe, just maybe, God has built you to be right here because you're needed to connect these two. But, but because you, you don't want to condition your life in such a way to, to, to interlock, uh, this person misses out and, and this person misses out because you're, you're the thing between. God built you for this. Because go back to, to what it says right? Walk in these things that God prepared beforehand. You, you were built for this before you were born. So you're meant to be a certain piece now, but if you're choosing this as opposed to this, everybody in the stream gets robbed. Everybody in the portrait is missing, missing out. And so the question for you is, for me, is what is, what is my shape what is my purpose? What is my calling? What is my design? What are my gifts? What has God built me for? Do I want to be useful in the body by design and locked together? Or, or, or am I just content with, no, I just want to be solo. I want to just do my, my own thing. Get by on my own way. Because here's the thing about the church. Every piece does its part, Paul says in, in verse 16. Every piece is supposed to. And so you have to start thinking about, man, am I, am I playing the part? Am I being fitted together as I've been called to be fitted together? Because here's the thing. You as an individual cannot grow if you don't lock in. And we as a church cannot grow unless you lock in. We are depending on you as much as you depend on us. I am depending on this church as much as this church depends on me. I mean, it is just, it's just the relationship. And when we do it this way, man, it breeds three things. First of all, it breeds maturity. We come together as the body of Christ using our gifts until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our maturity to grow in knowledge of Him, to grow in experience of Him, and it results in a Christ-centered, Christ-functioning church. Maturity comes from our interlocking. Another thing we get is fidelity. It says also so that we no longer may be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Not only does our interlocking grow us in depth, it secures us in our faithfulness. So we're not childish. We're more like true mature Christians. We're not rudderless, but we're steady. We're not a church of opinions, but a church of truth. It also establishes unity through diversity. Verse 15. Rather than being tossed to and fro, rather than giving in to all kinds of deceitful things, we speak the truth in love. 
And we grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Right? When we lock together, we speak the truth to one another and the truth to one another in love. It frees, it, 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 it motivates, it convicts in a kind way. It exercises that stuff we saw earlier, humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity and peace. So when the truth comes, then it encourages and it reminds and it comforts and it inspires. Bringing the truth as a scalpel and not merely just hacking away as a sword. That's what we do. And Paul says all of this in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 is for the common good. Right? All of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your skills, all of those things that you offer, all of those things that you need, when they lock together, is for the common good. Right now I'm going to ask the band to come out. And as they come out, I want you to look at that passage there in 1 Corinthians where it says, for the common good. It's an interesting word in Greek, that word common good. It's a single word, actually, in the original language. And I love it because it's actually where we get the word symphony. Right? This idea that all these things come together for the common good, the symphony, which is the church. And so even though we as individuals, we can get certain things done, we as individuals, we can accomplish certain tasks, there's something more powerful when we are all working in concert. But, but we'll put it together in this way. So we're going to go ahead and start this thing off with Nathan right here. Nathan, why don't you lay down a beat for us real quick? Getting the funk on, right? That's a cool instrument. The bass is awesome, right? And you could just do this in your car all day. But if you get old, they're like, you know, bass is cool. I think we need a little something different, though. So, uh, Max, why don't you bring on some drums? Oh, yeah. That's what we're talking about. So you get a little bit of thing going on. It's a little richer than just the one part. But you go, man, we can bring some more gifts to this. So, Amy, why don't you go ahead and bring in the shaker? This is nice. Sounding good? Ian, though, man. You got some keys you got to use. Nice. Now, Kara, you're standing over there with a tambourine. You can't just let that sit all day. You can use it, filling it in a little bit more, right? A little bit more robust. Nice. All right, my man. Now, this is a church. But it's incomplete. Even the smallest thing plays a part. That's a body in motion. All right? Thank you, crew. That is to be what the church is all about, right? Not just all playing instruments in our own little world, unconnected. We are to play together, connected. That is our calling. That is the purpose of the church. Our gifts with truth, in love, for unity, to Christ. That's what we do. And so how do you play? How do you play, right? This morning when you came in, you received a digest. And in the digest, 
there was a series of things on the inside, right, where it says Redemption Kids or 412 Junior High, Hospitality, Set Up and Tear Down, Revolution Senior High, uh, Tech Arts. These are all areas that right now we have needs for uh, as a church. And you might find that you have skills or abilities or gifts or uh, just whatever it is that you could contribute to the whole. The other day, Ryan texted me. You know how many people it takes to pull off a Sunday morning at Redemption Church? 90 people to pull off a Sunday morning. 90 people to pull off a Sunday morning. We need you. Because part of that is skeleton crew. Part of that is teachers teaching multiple times and things like that. So we need you. So when you're thinking about how can I play, right here is a great thing for you to look at and say, how can I play? How can I connect? How can I be involved? How can I use my time, my talents, my gifts for the betterment of the body of Christ? How can I make sure that what I have is for the common good? Right? And then you just check that off and drop that in the uh, offering plate when it comes by. And, and we'll get a hold of you in the next 24 hours, let you know ways that you can connect if you checked off one of those boxes. But it is, again, it's that question, how can I serve? How can I connect? How can I use? Because God is using people in tremendous ways here at Redemption Church. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for your word and your wisdom, your grace and your truth in your awesome name. Amen.